Well, g'day, folks, and welcome to episode number nine of Plane Crazy Down Under, the podcast that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. And just for this week, it's also from an up-over point of view, depending on who you talk to. Way up-over. Steve Fisher here once again, talking to you from the pleasantly rain-soaked southern suburbs of Melbourne, Australia. And with me in our virtual hangar this week is, of course, Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Uh, didn't get to crew the balloons this morning. It was just a bit too windy, but tomorrow morning's looking pretty dang good. So fingers crossed I get to get up uh, really, really early and go chase balloons around the place. Very cool. Now, we've got a cast of thousands here this week. Our good friends at the Airplane Geeks uh, were not recording an episode this week, so rather than let them sit around and get bored, we thought we'd grab as many of them as we could. So in order, we have Rob Mark from Chicago. How are you, Rob? Uh, Good day, mate. Oh, you promised you wouldn't say that. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, (laughs) I'm sorry. You're right. Uh, Good morning, evening, whatever. It's whatever zone you're in. Thank you for listening. Happy time zone anomaly. We also have with us from, uh, whereabouts are you, uh, Dan, Dan Webb? <laughs> I'm from, where I'm are from you, Dan? <laughs> I'm from Rhode Island. Do you know where Rhode Island is? Actually, I, no one else in this country does. Yeah, I, I think I drove through it once. So I was only doing about 80 kilometers an hour, but it was there and it was gone. And also with us here, of course, is David Vanderhoof, and he's joining us from, whereabouts are you, David? Uh, Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, otherwise known as outside of Philadelphia, the home of Rocky. Right. David Vanderhoof, also known as the Airplane Geeks and lately the Plane Crazy Down Under historian and doing okay. a wonderful job. So, wait a minute. You mean he's two-timing us? I didn't realize that. So, what we're going to do this week is just have a bit of a uh, roundtable discussion, if you like, from opposite sides of the planet on uh, some issues that are important to both podcasts. And uh, we'll just ask our listeners to bear with us because we've had a few technical difficulties, but uh, we'll just move on from there. Okay, well... We're here with the uh, horde from uh, Airplane Geeks. Uh, we've got Dan, we've got Dave, and we've got Rob. Yeah, it's the horde. We're only missing Max. That and sounds nice. Full set. It's because Max is out on a yacht somewhere in Chesapeake Bay. Well, he's, he's giving us nautical on. I'm sure he's. <laughs> I'm sure he's really miserable not being here with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and given that Max calls you co-hosts, friends, pals, um, acquaintances, and so on, I thought horde was pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. co-friends, but you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're all gathered here today. Um, the cl- teacher has let us uh, get the class together without him running it. Thanks, Dave. And uh, we're going to talk about Virgin Blue, Emirates, uh, buying new aircraft, and uh, seat pitch. So let's give this a whirl, shall we? Who wants to lead off? Oh, yeah, I think Dan should. Okay. Because I was excited because this apparently means I am now officially on the Virgin Blue pl- press list, which made it made my day. Anyway. Ooh. Um, so I got that press release uh, today, this earlier this week, and it said how Virgin Blue, well, via Australia and Emirates would be co-chairing. And uh, at first, this, this was kind of confusing to me, but uh, what's going to happen is Emirates is now, has been flying from New Zealand uh, to Sydney, I believe from Christchurch and Auckland. Um, and they will, and then it'll go over uh, to the Middle East. Um, in the past, um, V Australia has had an agreement with Pacific Blue, a Virgin Blue carrier, to have passengers go to New Zealand, Sydney, LA, wherever. Um, but now Emirates will be doing that. So uh, V Australia told me a couple reasons. That first thing, timing's better, whatever. But the second reason, I think this is the biggest reason, is um, it's a good service for the business class passengers. Because right now, Pacific Blue, they do have a premium economy, but it's basically like well, what you'll find on a European domestic flight. Two coach seats with like a table in the middle, I believe. So now, 
that an Emirates uh, business class seat on a internationally configured 380 or 777 is a wee bit nicer than that. So I think this is uh, really a win-win. Um, Emirates gets some more seats on those flights, hopefully, and the Australia gets some more travel from New Zealand. I'll tell you what, Air New Zealand will be really, really unhappy about this because, uh, you know, we've reported earlier that uh, they've already been complaining to the government here about uh, V Australia trying to link up with Delta. This is going to infuriate them. Yeah, well, I mean, Emirates were already doing the uh, the cross Tasman flights because they had these aircraft coming in from um, the A340s, the uh, A380s, uh, coming all the way in from Dubai and then just sitting around on the tarmac waiting for the right time to go back. So they started using them going across the Tasman. They weren't always full, but they were actually uh, putting a lot of cargo under hold because don't forget those bigger aircraft can carry bigger containers than a 7-3 can. Yep. Hey, guys, so can, I- can- can I ask a question? Who has the cheaper flights, Emirates or Air New Zealand? Oh, it'd be Air New Zealand for sure. Uh, don't Emir- count Emirates, on that. Emirates is pricey, but, man. They're, uh, they're expensive. Well, but now that they have the code share and it's only for the... Hmm, I, I know how it... I haven't priced it out yet, but... um, I, I, I mean, they're definitely... I'm not sure if price is a huge concern because it, it definitely looks like the Australia and Emirates are aiming for the uh, business class passenger here. Yeah, look, Emirates are willing to charge it a bit extra because uh, you get supposedly you get better service and better spacing and things like that. I mean, if you're worried about price, go with Tiger. It almost seems strange in a way because you, you've got you know you've sort of got one one type of airline with the premium, like you say, the premium seat, and you know, you're linking up with another airline that's sort of the complete opposite of that. Not what, what do you mean? I mean, V Australia isn't has got a business class and premium economy, and and that's why they're that's who they're trying to aim for, not the business class. I know Emirates first is, is nice, especially on the 380, but I'm a Virgin Blue when I asked their PR rep, they said business class, so yeah, it'll be a nice link up, and I, I think Emirates is a lot much nicer than Pacific Blue for sure. You don't believe the PR person though, do you? I don't always believe them, but that you know. But Vir- Virgin, the Virgin PR people have actually been very nice to me. Uh, I will oh. all the Virgins. Yeah. Atlantic, America, Virgin Blue. I, I got all of them. Oh, so many lines, so little time. Oh, no. <laughs> there, there, there is a trend, Dan, recently, either photographs or now we're using, we're, we're focusing more on Virgin. There's a theme growing here, dude. On the, oh, on the and the, but they did, they, did, they did tell me, though, that the Pacific Blue arrangement will still uh, be in place. Like, for example, I know one of the cities that word Pacific Blue was Wellington. Emirates doesn't do Wellington, so... Yeah, they can't. <laughs> it's because the only thing that'll get into uh, Wellington is a 767, a 737, or a 747 SP. The runway's too short. They can't extend at either end because of the harbour in one end and the ocean in the other. It's a very tricky approach. When the winds are howling, uh, you've got aircraft going all over the place. There's some YouTube videos out there of uh, aircraft on final approach into Wellington, and it's uh, rather spectacular. In fact, oh, yeah. in fact, El Presidente, El Presidente Carlos Menem, who the ex, one of the ex-presidents of Argentina, apparently was flying into Wellington to meet the local dignitaries in New Zealand, and uh, the plane was going all over the place on approach, and apparently he called up to the pilots from the back, said, stuff this, we're not landing here, and they went up to Auckland and left all the dignitaries standing around in Wellington going, oops. Uh, not sure on the uh, – I've heard that from two or three different sources within Argentina and outside, so I'd, I'd put some money on that one. Well, it's a lot of very unhappy sheep. We probably shouldn't make that joke, should we? Oh, it won't be the first time we've pissed I, I, off everyone. I think we have a listener in New Zealand, don't we? Um, according not to any. the stats, there's one or two. Probably my cousins. Uh, not anymore. New Zealand, Australia, it's the same thing anyway, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, which part of Canada were you from, Rob? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, moving along on the Virgin front, uh, 
we've got some news here that uh, Virgin are looking at squeezing more uh, seats into the back of their aircraft. They're looking at keeping premium economy and classic economy seating before the exit rows. Uh, and now they're going to put another row of seats in the back behind the exit rows. Uh, they're already investigating that because, to quote uh, Brett Godfrey, just by putting an extra row of seats in the back lowers our costs overnight by 3%, so that's a good start. Mate, I don't know, sometimes I've been in the back of a Virgin plane and my knees are definitely against the seat in front, so if they get them much crunchier, I, for one, am going to be very upset. Their configuration is pretty similar to what I saw on Southwest, and actually the exit row on the Southwest flight and the Virgin flight was the best row to go get in because you got that extra leg room. Well, actually, Mr. Fisher. Yes. Okay, would. so Southwest has about a 32-inch seat pitch on the normal flights. Virgin Blue is about a 30, 31 in economy and 34 in premium economy. How many kilograms is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I'm not sure how what, but one reason I find this interesting, I just did a quick Google search, and apparently um, the seat pitch for Tiger Airways is 72.5 centimeters, which is about 28.5 inches, which is a yep. more cramped than Virgin Blue. So I'm not sure if this is any move with Tiger, but yeah, this can definitely reduce cost. I mean, just by the simple math of it so just because now you have more seats more asms now your cost is divided over more asms yay financial ratios yeah that's definitely what that's the reason why ryanair are looking to take out the back toilets and put in another two rows no yeah i mean even if it's if you can pop in a couple of rows and people will buy it cheaply why not and I'm, I'm just wondering if this is if this is a way to try to offer some cheap seats maybe to compete with tiger you guys know the market a lot better than than i do you know they started off as a as a purely a budget airline but they seem to be gradually sort of shifting away from from that um, that sort of market a little bit it seems to me anyway but um <laughs> who'd want to who'd want to get down in the in the gutter and compete with tiger airways good lord yeah, well, yeah. well doesn't doesn't version blue don't they have a few 738s in an all economy configuration too with no premium yeah yeah they they refer to their blue zones which is front of the cabin and exit aisles and things you play pay extra for that to get the the space but yeah once you get below about 30 inches of pitch i start to have a real major problem fitting in because your knees start crying oh my whole body starts crying (laughs) uh, i flew i flew a couple of um i was with uh thai airways and I was flying uh, from Bangkok to Hong Kong to Korea for into Seoul for some work. And, oh, yeah, they, they definitely reduce the seat pitch in the inter-Asia aircraft compared to the international ones because, hey, you know, they can get away with it. And it's really interesting when the person in front of you puts their seat back, back and you're looking down on the top of their head. Okay. Well, just to let you know. Especially when they I, do it quickly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just because I like uh, dumping on United, the seat pitch on a United 7.4 between the U.S. and Australia is the same as a Virgin Blue 737-800, just saying. Uh, this could explain why I avoid avoid them like the plague. Well, the, the main reason, the main thing that put me off crossing the Pacific with um, United is that um, they've still got the 1990s configuration. I mean, no, no seat back televisions. Well, they do. Well, they, they have a very nice business and first class product, but uh, for tow coach, um, yeah, have fun. Yeah, yeah. It they don't call it coach anymore. It's it's been changed at United. They call it steerage. <laughs> it's either, it's either well, steerage or riffraff. I can't remember. I thought it was well, self self well, loading freight. Well, actually, here well here's 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 one branding error on United's part. Uh, they have economy and then they have economy plus, which is a couple inches of legroom. So now obviously everyone calls regular seats uh, economy minus 
So, (laughs) good point. United, now boarding the economy class cabin. Get on, doggies. Something like that. There you go. I thought I'd drop that in. He's been aching to use that all night. Yes. I I know. And we should tell everybody that Steve has this brand new mixer that's going to, I mean, this whole podcasting thing is just going crazy, isn't it? Revolutionizing the whole of playing crazy down under. Yes, that's yeah, exactly. Well, and obviously we have Max here in the States to help us because Dan and I are clueless about the the uh, technology. Uh, although, as I was telling you guys earlier, I did a podcast for the first time, and it's 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 way more work than most people know to make it really sound good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, can I just make a, a, a comment? I mean, I we, you know, we have so many of the Airplane Geek guys here this morning, except for Max, but I've noticed that Dan is much... He's much spunkier here with you guys than he is when he's on the regular show. Maybe he did, just woke you up. Guys, did you guys send him something? Or well, you, you never know. You never know what sort of uh, chemicals get around those university campuses. Ah, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows what he's having for breakfast? Can I? Can I just Jeez. make another com- Another observation here. I mean, do you, one thing that all of these shows are missing is that we have no ladies. Airplane geeks is all guys. You guys are all guys. People that come on are all guys. How can we never have any ladies? Because they Could take it be one those kinds run. of Jersey comments that just make them say, "We're <laughs> not doing this." Yeah. Well, well, Steve's got that new mixer. Maybe he can up his voice for a podcast, so it sounds like there's a female. <laughs> yes, well, maybe I could, but probably I won't. <laughs> G'day, I'm Steve Fisher. <laughs> you just remember, Dan, I recorded you doing that once before, and <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, can, can we do the other version story? Because I, I kind of gotta, gotta run. All right, you gotta. Okay, let's let's not let's not impose on Dan's time here. Go so ahead. So which one was that? That was about buying. I thought we were going to talk about American buying Japan. Uh, no, because well, uh, Qantas have actually just said, uh, "No, we're not going to buy it." They, there was rumors well, that Qantas and BA were joining AA to buy JAL. So actually, let's just run this properly. Well, there's sir. rumors there's rumors that BA and AA are joining QF to buy JAL. Nice. Yeah, well, yeah. I can talk about that one real quick. Um, yeah, do that one, Dan. Okay, so. <laughs> It was actually reported a week ago that Delta was interested in JAL, um, which is really interesting because there are a few things going on in the background here. Um, but the first thing, obviously, Delta, Sky Team, uh, JAL, One World, huge part of One World. If JAL leaves One World for Sky Team, that's a huge uh, loss for American and BA and Qantas. But other things going on in the process. First, uh, Delta, when it acquired Northwest, acquired Northwest's Narita Hub because they uh, operate some intra-Asia flights out of Tokyo, which is a legacy from World War II. But um, Narita had, uh, well, not Narita, Tokyo has two airports, Narita and Haneda. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. But the latter is like the smaller, uh, kind of like what we have in the States, like with Dulles and National, one big international one and one closer into the city that's mainly domestic. But that airport their expand uh, new runway or lengthened runway, I forget, new international terminal. Finally getting some overseas flights. If Delta can use JAL to get into that airport, that's a huge competitive advantage. Other thing going on right now, All Nippon is applying for, All Nippon, however to say it, is applying for antitrust immunity, which allow them to better compete with their Star Alliance partners. So then you have Delta coming in. Air France might get involved with them. Don't know who came first, but probably when Delta said, then Americans said, oh, hey, we need to... <laughs> We're interested, too, because they need to keep JAL in one world. Rumors that BA and Qantas might get involved, but America will be putting up the cash. Then, to get things more interesting, um, even though they, they need it for plenty of other things, maybe this was a motivator. American 
um, this week announced a uh, they got they sold a billion dollars worth of frequent flyer miles to Citibank and getting a 280 million loan from the leasing arm of GE. So they now have 1.3 billion dollars in cash that they can now use. So this is. <laughs> interesting to see how it pans out and there's really been no official word on anything this has all been rumors so um but now uh and delta put out some new financing this week mainly to pay off northwest debt but this should be fun to watch so we'll see what has to be said about it i know in about a month's time uh the airlines over here will be reporting their third quarter earnings so uh we'll see if anything closes by then but if not see uh the delta and american executives have to say about it well it looks like the the never-ending stream of uh, airline mergers and, and uh, code sharing changes just rolls on unabated uh, yeah, yeah well, well actually i was on a uh, an iata call on tuesday and um, actually, just to let you guys know, Steve Creedy was on there too. So, oh, okay. um, oh I've never heard of him. But uh, IATA was pretty adamant, and they they think some further consolidation is still possible. And they were, what's funny, they were ragging on foreign ownership rules about how the airlines in a lot of countries, like I don't, I think here in the U.S., a foreign party can't own more than 25% of a carrier. I think uh, in Australia the cap is 49, but I'm not sure. And how they they're just take to that. Um, airlines unlike other businesses can't really tap global capital markets like other businesses can on a side note but um no if this if if jail leaves one world for sky team that would be huge i wouldn't be surprised if korean air maybe left sky team to pop off and hop over to one world maybe because korean air now has become the secondary carrier uh in sky team but this would be uh this would be a pretty big move um if they're in one world uh if they leave one world sorry yeah. <laughs> Because right now, One World is the smallest of the three alliances already. So this would be a big blow. Yeah, it would really kill them out. But, uh, I mean, Qantas are doing everything they can to say that they are definitely not involved in it at all. Yeah, they're, they're saying, no, 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 not us. Uh, we've got our own things to worry about. Yeah, well, they still got B- – is BA still looking at them, Grant? They were looking at them. Oh, no, that, that's off That's no. off the cards. That was uh, that was previous CEO. Oh, right, okay. Yep. Yeah, but, but yeah, right now – it's interesting because um, BA and Iberia are still playing to merge. Then plus over in the Atlantic, they want to get antitrust immunity with uh, American. They've been trying this for years and years. Um, the big sticking point there was Heathrow. Um, but now with Open Skies, it's become a bit better. But now Virgin Atlantic is like, no, don't give me antitrust immunity. Ah. So um, we'll see how that goes. But right now um, in the Atlantic, uh, Sky Team and Star Alliance have antitrust immunity. One World doesn't. Big blow to them. Uh, Asia really don't have a whole lot of antitrust immunity going on but if ANA comes in uh and that that gives star an advantage so we'll have to we'll have to see what happens here but yeah it's always exciting but uh J- JAL is still I I mean they need cash badly they're they're shedding more roots they're cutting more workers so it's definitely not pretty over there no not at all but they're well, going the, through what everyone else is going through as well. You know, Qantas have been doing that. Qantas uh, claiming now that they've they've hit rock bottom. They can't cut any more capacity. And in fact, they're starting to report that uh, passenger numbers have increased unexpectedly. Yeah, um, passengers have increased. There has been a little bit of a bump in even what's really important has been the drop in premium traffic. Because, well, yeah, Coast is a good source of revenue, but your, your big profit margins are in business in first class. Yeah, they're starting um, to see that come back, though. There's indications that premium may be starting to spike again well actually you know verbal give me give me one second guys i'm sorry let me get let me i have have a report here that let me pull it up okay here comes the excel spreadsheet from now it's a it's a pdf 
one of the things to also consider and as we're, as we're looking at all this, even if the number of passengers is coming back, even if premium passengers are starting to come back, the bubbling that's starting to happen out there is that fuel prices are going up a little bit now as well. So because you've got more passengers happening, but uh, the margins are down because they've cut the fares as much as they can to get everyone in. Even if premium's coming back, they're at a bit like massive redu- price reductions on what they were before. And if your uh, price of oil goes up, well, there goes any benefit. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see the uh, the really heavy discounting that we've been seeing come to a pretty abrupt end pretty shortly. So, uh, pa- premium traffic there, there there's it's still down for where it was a year ago, but it, it did uh bounce up, and IATA did have its just just released its premium traffic report for for July, and um. Uh, it says, uh, just to quick highlight, it says there are no signs as yet that corporate travel buyers are willing to pay for more, f- the more flexible full service and for the airline's higher yielding premium seats. As a result, we estimate average premium fares remained 23% down on last year. Yep. Um, business traveler may be starting to return, but as a result of low yields, we estimate revenues from premium travel are improving much more slowly than passenger numbers and was still down 35 to 40% on the year in July. So... Still, uh, there have been recoveries in passenger counts, and economy has been slightly resilient here, but passenger numbers doesn't always matter. Um, I mean, I could be an airline and give away tickets for a dollar. I'd have a high-low factor. My passenger count would be through the roof, but I'd be bleeding cash. So we need need yields to recover right now. Um, So we'll see what happens there. Um, There'll be some data coming on on that in a couple days. and it, It looks like most of the data that we've that I've been seeing, at least for the American carriers, is that um, it's still bad, but it's not getting crappier. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's like it's it's like it's still bad, but it's not declining as fast. It's shallowing off on the decline. Yeah, so I mean, the airlines have have cut capacity a lot. Um, hopefully, we'll see some kind of recovery. Um, one thing I had was concerned about is with with what the airlines have had to deal with. They're now pushing back. Um, investments in their fleet, which is bad because the Mile Recovery is not even older fleet. They're putting back investments in new and more efficient aircraft, which provide cost savings. Well, um, speaking of new and more efficient aircraft, weren't, weren't we <laughs> going to talk about Virgin Blue buying some more aircraft? Hey, good job, Coily, cutting me off right there from my rambling. Oh, I, I wasn't rambling. I was, I've, I'm still riding always. my Segway. Yeah. All right, Virgin Blue. Virgin <laughs> Blue. More virgins. Yes, more, more virgins for Dan. Film at 11. <laughs> So, uh, Virgin announced this week, uh, possibly in the market for 30 to 50 uh, Boeing uh, narrowbodies, so obviously the 73 most likely. Um, and Brett Godfrey, the chief, was right, right on the money. Um, now's a good time to, to play hardball with the, with the carriers. Well, uh, with not with the carriers, with, with the manufacturers. Um, I mean, the order counts uh, for Boeing and Airbus have been very anemic. Um, <laughs> very... Uh, I mean, they luckily they both uh, both manufacturers did have pretty strong backlogs uh, going into their session. Nevertheless, they still want more orders. Um, granted, that most of these orders will not be used for fleet growth. I think that's key here. Is yeah. Virgin has a bunch of leased aircraft that need to go back to those lessers eventually. Yeah, they're um, all the ones. They're all the ones that they uh, picked up in the wake of September 11. So surprise, surprise, they're all coming up on lease ending or lease renewal time. Yeah, I, I guess at this point, um, compared to leasing, I'm sure. Um, I think um, the deal was said to be four billion Australian, which is about three and a half US. 
Um, but I mean, that's probably on list prices. No one pays list price anyway. And at least in this environment, I'm sure Boeing is going to, they'll probably want to buy one, get one half off promotion or something. If you have the coupon <laughs> online, um, and the steak knives. Yes. Yes. But wait, but wait there's more. <laughs> well, well, we've, actually, we've got blended winglets. Oh, okay. Well, you get, well, you get winglets and you'll probably get the free, um, the free like Estee Lauder, um, moisturizer set or something. I don't know. Um, how about a 787 wing box? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going cheaper uh, here. I was thinking yeah, more the 787 um, signature interior. Well, they'll, they'll probably do the new 737 Sky interior, yeah. And I, and I believe that uh, that does pull some things from the 78. Um, yep. does make it seem a bit nicer. And I believe gives like a 1% to 2% efficiency gain. Better air, uh, um, more uh, bigger apparent space because they're using new cabin bins above your head and uh, uh, more space around the windows and things like that. Plus the lights. That's good because that's that's one reason people prefer the A320 over the 737 family because it's the cabin. Um, I believe uh, the A320 fuselage is uh, seven inches wider um, and an extra inch per seat and an extra inch in the aisle. That that's that's a little nice. It's a bit more spacious because I mean, uh, maybe our airplane geeks historian might know this, but because um, I believe the seven three fuselage is essentially a seven oh seven fuselage in terms of shape, right? Absolutely, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same width. So yeah, <laughs> it, they did. Boeing has. So that would be Boeing hasn't changed their fuselage in sixty years, at least uh-huh. not in not. Across the, across the fuselage, I mean, in length, yes, but the 727, 737, and 707 had the same fuselage. Yep, correct. Oh, yes. So, um, speaking of new narrowbodies, flight blogger John Astrar, who we've had on our show a few times, just dropping that name, has yeah. on his blog some, oh, yeah. some wicked cool pictures. You guys should take a look of a potential new Airbus narrowbody, and they look pretty freaky. And at this point, Dan had to leave us and head off to begin his day, so the conversation picks up a few minutes later, and we've moved on to the subject of air traffic control. What's the gist of the story? Uh, Basically, three air traffic controllers called in sick on Sunday for the evening shift, and as a result, uh, um, air services, our equivalent of the FAA and all that, had to uh, drastically reduce the number of, um, of flights in. They pretty much halved the flights. So you had flights waiting on the ground. You had a lot of flights orbiting and waiting to get in. Um, the result is that Virgin are very upset and are chasing air services for reimbursement. Uh, Steve, you reckon they wouldn't be able to, but they're doing it. They're trying. And um, then you also have uh, indications that the controllers' union's getting a bit pissed off with air services again. And the controllers are saying that they're understaffed. Air services are saying that they've got enough staff but everyone knows that um, they need more controllers in the Sydney area, at least. It's mm. a very interesting story here. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's coincidental that the first podcast that I did over at Jet One was with the new incoming president of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association here in the states. It just was elected day before yesterday, and uh, the the some of the insights that they they made about all the some of the people may know some all the grief that we had here in the states. The Patco situation. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, you know, Patco has been gone a long time, but Natco took its place actually yep. very quickly after Patco left because. Yeah, honestly, although those folks at Patco in 1981 probably didn't choose the right tactic, the strike, uh, the issues they were they were upset about were legitimate, and, yeah. and they didn't go away. They that's why another union came to be just a few years later. 
Um, but of course, I, I was referring to the fact that the uh, here in the states, the FAA imposed work rules on uh, on controllers about three years ago. In fact, it was just about three years ago exactly, uh, yep. early uh, early uh, September, and um, and it, the vitriol that w- went on, I mean, uh, was just unbelievable. But um, I talked to um, uh, both Paul Rinaldi, who did become the new uh, president of the Controllers Union. Oh, right. And, he made uh, it. Okay. His, his opponent, uh, Ruth Marlin. Uh, yep. and, and both of them had some incredible insights into uh, you know, what we thought was simply a microcosm of, of unrest uh, with, with, these, with these workers was really... Uh, in their view, more of a uh, a concerted effort on the Bush administration's part to to bust the back of labor, uh, and yeah. that, that FAA and air traffic control was really just their guinea pig uh, to see how it all worked out. And uh, and so I, as much as I don't want to simply plug uh, our podcast at jetwine.com, uh, it, it was it was actually very interesting, and I've heard some some good comments about the the, the depth of knowledge that these two people uh, running the union uh, have. So, uh, uh, but again, here it, it, it's this is a never-ending battle with. Uh, I, I mean, it's not just Australia or the states. Uh, we see this in France, uh, of course. The French strike for practically anything, I think, don't they? <laughs> yes. Uh, but I mean, you know, they always say that there's not enough enough staff. Uh, technology can only do so much, uh, and uh, you know, again, if uh, that that's really one of the issues is it doesn't matter how how few people or how many people you have, technology's not up to snuff, uh, and that'd be something I'd be asking here at. In Australia, uh, were these were these tower controllers or were these radar Appro- controllers? These were approach or? control. They were approach okay. control. Uh, that's interesting, and uh, I, I wonder what the what the uh, actual issue is. Uh, just simply okay. not enough bodies is, is is the symptom. I don't think that's the problem. No, that's not the that's not the uh, the root cause. Look, the here in, here in Australia, the uh, there has been a lot of uh, has been as nasty as in the U.S. But between the controllers and the power that, that governs them. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth. It's been a lot of acrimony. Uh, not been a uh, a nice relationship between the two parties, and uh, they're wanting them to work more and uh, fewer people covering more time. The usual kind of things, less breaks. Uh, they're they're cracking down on a lot of areas, and that is not making the life of an air traffic controller any easier. It's making it worse. So the air traffic controllers are pushing back. So there has been a lot of a lot of back and forth, similar to what's been in the States. Uh, a lot of he said, she said in the press, things like that. Uh, Technology-wise, Australia's got some very advanced air traffic control um, technologies. We're leading the way um, in some areas for a lot of the, the gear that uh, you're seeing. Uh, we're working a lot with uh, Thales from, from France. Uh, and implementing a lot of really cool modern technology in, in our controls. But uh, it still comes down to the number of controllers available and uh, how hard you run your resources. And again and again, it comes down to you're trying to, there's a group trying to make a profit. So it's been a lot of, uh, it's been a lot of consolidation of staff and facilities over here, say, in the last 10, 15 years, hasn't it, Grant? Uh, for, yep. Since I think all the end. All the en route controlling for the entire nation is done from two centres. I think one in Brisbane and one in Melbourne. Correct, with a diagonal line going between the two across to the west coast. So, uh, guys, can I sorry, look, sorry. can I chime in? What was were they legitimately sick when they called out, or was this a? I guess I guess the concern is here up in the states. We have a concern over H one N one, the swine yep. flu. Yep. And 
it spreads like the plague. You know, if you've and you're losing, you're lo- in an air traffic control center. I can imagine that if someone actually shows up with it, that whole center is going to come down with it within because they're all touching the same screens and there. And I, mean, it is a real concern that you lost three at one in one time. And yeah, it doesn't I, sound like it was deliberate. I don't think it was a sick in, but they are doing the usual. There will there will be the uh, witch hunt, no doubt. And uh, there's already indications that there's going to be a lot of interviews and, and assessments going on uh, to find out whether it was a sick in type of thing or, or what was going on there. But uh, the uh, swine flu went through Sydney a, a month or two ago. Um, a lot of people were getting it, I remember, two months to a month ago. Uh, working with people up in Sydney and, oh, yeah, this office is um, pretty much empty because everyone's got it. You know, my sister had it and all this kind of stuff. And by the time my sister got it, the unless you were one of the people who was old, already ill or things like that, they were just saying, go home and sleep it off, mate. That's <laughs> all there is to it. They, they weren't really reacting pretty crazily about it. It just went through. Everyone got the flu and it um, wiped out a few days of work for a lot of areas. I have seen a report that uh, I can't remember where in Australia it was, but they've just found their first case of swine flu that is resistant to Tamiflu. So uh, that's putting a bit of pressure on a lot of groups that are creating new um, uh, what do they vaccines. Call it? Thank you. Yeah, the groups that are creating new vaccines, they uh, there's a lot of pressure on them to they're trying to get some out, and there may be there's some concerns that they may be trying to rush them out without fully testing, and they could be worse than the, the problem. But uh, yeah, this incident in Sydney just looks to be one of those things that happens very rarely, and because air services, despite what they say, they they are running. The, all the indications are there that they're, they're running tight. As Virgin Blue said, yes, we have pilots go sick all the time. It happens, but they carry enough reserves to be able to cover for this. The most important point here is, okay, they had three people off. Three people. Sydney's a, a major air traffic control centre in this country. I mean, if they were that desperate, could they not have perhaps got some RAF people up from Williamtown? Or, there's, there's, why would three people be able to shut down major sectors of their air traffic control? That I, I find that amazing. That means you're running it pretty tight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And the problem, problem if you have people get sick and, and bringing other people in is that they're not they're not familiar with the procedures in that uh, in that chunk of airspace. And and unfortunately, you know, people train for for long periods of time to work traffic in a in a particular sector and to just you know it'd be like grabbing somebody from uh, from uh, Philly and and taking them up to. Uh, to the the common IFR room up in New York. I mean, they they know the general idea of air traffic control, which is to keep them apart, but they don't know the airspace, they don't know the nav aids, they don't know the frequencies, and they'd just be lost. Uh, And, and, you know, that's an interesting point, though, that you made about the the, the profit margin, of course, uh, which we don't have here in the States uh, in our our air traffic system, but... uh, you, you would think that if uh, if they did have a profit margin, that that they would realize that they do need some flexibility, some reserve, some plan somehow. That if uh, uh, somebody calls in sick uh, or or who knows what, I mean, if the sector goes down or whatever, that they have some kind of plan. But I I, I it doesn't sound like they did. I mean, you're right. Three people is if the whole place came to a grinding halt when three people went down. This is this is pretty scary. I think I think that's I think from memory, three people is about half a shift in approach control. Oh, and so, uh, wow! I mean, it may not 
and don't forget too, Sydney's got some pretty outrageous noise abatement procedures, which you know perhaps they couldn't send them into different sectors if it wasn't that area of Sydney's day to have the aircraft flying over. Uh, maybe they couldn't send them off to another to another sector. Well, you know, it's funny when I was talking to the folks up up here in the states last week, uh, the, the 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 candidates for the controllers union job. Uh, one of them, uh, Ruth Marlin, made an interesting point about uh, how, because you know, in, in the states here, they're all government employees. And uh, and they hire these people because of their skill in in being able to uh, sort of uh, keep six plates in the air at the same time, which demands incredible flexibility and and uh, the, the need to be able to operate on a fly and think at a moment's notice. And yet uh, they work for one of the most inflexible organizations on the face of the earth, and and that constant friction of uh, of needing to ask permission for something is just is just incredible and i wonder if it's still like that in those places like uh, down by you guys there in australia or in canada uh, where or or even uh, uh, you know the uh, the, the uh, uk system i wonder how bureaucratic they are compared to what we are here in the states well bureaucracy is 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 a, an art form that our australian public services picked up from the british <laughs> It'd yeah, it'd be pretty complex. And Grant and I have both been through the selection process, haven't we? You've been through it, haven't you, Grant, for air traffic control? I mean, it's pretty, yeah. pretty rigorous. Uh, gentlemen, <laughs> am I understanding this correctly, that your air traffic controllers are a for-profit organization? Uh, not quite, not quite. Air Services Australia, I believe, is a quasi-government organization. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a corporatized version of the um, Civil Aviation Authority. They just basically corporatize it like they did with everything else. It's it's still a government entity. It's just that they try to run it like a business rather than like a public service. Perhaps like our postal system. Yeah, similar. Well, they did the same with our postal system. So, uh, you know, it used to, used to be able to get a letter overnight anywhere in the country, and now it can take three or four days. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's working well. <laughs> to quote to quote the airservices.com, home, uh, it's, the homepage is airservicesaustralia.com. And uh, as it says here, we are a government-owned corporation providing safe and environmentally sound air traffic control management and related airside services to the aviation industry. They they cover, uh, in addition to air traffic control, they're doing telecommunications, navigation services, aviation rescue, firefighting, things like that. Apparently, they've been twice voted as the world's best provider of air traffic control, but that probably wasn't from the traffic controllers. They the uh, latest indications coming out from there are that, uh, according to a couple of articles, oh, here's one from Steve Creedy, uh, about air services and staff on a collision course. Uh, they're back on a collision course with staff after cancelling the leave of 30 air traffic controllers for three months following flight delays and cancellations on Sunday. Uh, the Sydney air traffic control is said to be incensed by the move, which has disrupted long-term holiday plans and overseas trips during the New South Wales school holidays. And uh, according to a friend of ours who's in air traffic control, yeah, he's he's just uh, recently completed uh, his initial training. He's out there in the workforce. And uh, what he's saying is that uh, it's probably going to lead, to lead to more sick leave, a high demand for annual leave. And uh, it really smells of revenge on the part of Air Services Australia management. He's saying they're short of staff in Sydney and there's always going to be delays when you're running on minimum staff. And uh, it's looking like it's going to come to a head again. It, it, a few years ago, there was a lot of this going on, uh, this, the controllers versus management. Things settled down for a while. It looked like things were getting sorted out and, and uh, coming coming around. But uh, this is probably going to bring it all right back up into the uh, limelight. I don't know whether you heard... Yeah, see, and that, that's where it really gets ugly. And, and they've had that here in the States too. I mean, 
the uh, the FAA tried that with uh, after they imposed the work rules on controllers a couple of years ago. They imposed a, uh, yep. a dress code on them, uh, which when I was <laughs> Of course, I was a I was an early controller where we used to wear ties, shirts and ties and things to work. But uh, then it became much less formal. You could wear blue jeans, you could wear shorts and flip flops. Nobody cared because nobody saw you anyway. I mean, that was you, you were locked up in a little dark room. Um, and and then FAA did what sounds like they're trying to do here, which is saying, not only are we going to be really mean to you because we can, and we're trying to see how far we can push labor. But we're going to impose work rules, which say you'll wear certain kinds of slacks, certain kinds of shoes, certain kinds of shirts, uh, and you'll either do it or we'll get rid of you. And, and of course, um, something else that I, I thought was, was interesting that Ruth Marlin told me the other day, who was who the lady that did not win the Controllers Union presidency. But she said, you know what we found out in the last three years was that the controllers were not nearly as easy to provoke as FAA had thought they would be. And and I thought that was a very interesting statement because honestly, I wasn't even a controller anymore and I kept sitting here on the sidelines saying, how long can they put up with this? Yeah. Uh, but they did. And, uh, and and of course now it's all changed since the uh, the Obama administrations in which is a which you know the Democrats tend to be a very pro labor uh, yep. side side of things. So it's it's all changing again. Yeah, I've been I've been reading the a uh, couple of FAA staff blogs such as get the flick and the faa follies uh from oh, yes current follies retired. oh yeah they're, they're a lot of fun there's a there's get the flick there's the faa follies there's a couple others out there that i read and uh yeah that's it's great reading all those and seeing what's going on but uh i don't know i don't know grant whether you heard in the uh the radio media i heard a report today uh, that the government was perhaps considering restructuring uh, the way they they run the military and the civilian air traffic control systems and, yep uh, with, with uh, maybe with a view to Merging them together, which that's is interesting, correct. probably worrying, but interesting. Well, and and maybe maybe that's that's you know part to do with this um, lack of love between the uh, the workers and the and the employer, which in this case is the government. Well, what's actually happening is that uh, the military air traffic controllers were being poached by air services because uh, they were able to actually pay them more than they were making with the military and give them a bit more stability and so on. And uh, so what's happening is that the, our current government is uh, looking, they, they believe they can save more than $300 million by merging the civil and military air traffic control systems, uh, creating for the first time a unified effort, as is mentioned in this article by Cameron Stewart and oops, Steve Creedy here in the, uh, the Australian uh, Transport Minister, Anthony Albanese last night confirmed that plans for a merge system were progressing but declined to provide details. It's interesting that the current Australian Defence Force Chief Angus Houston uh, stated in 2002 he signed a, a, a defence document stating that Australia simply cannot justify, sustain or afford to continue operating two almost identical air traffic management systems. So he's now the uh, Defence Force Chief, so he's in a pretty good position to push through a change. And it is it is interesting, you can get the situation in a uh, where we have commercial and military traffic at the same airport and uh, you'll have co- uh, domestic commercial controllers standing right alongside the uh, military guys and they're tag teaming and it's it's interesting so you can see a little bit of benefit there they they do have to do a lot of handover between them and controlling and it, it especially between richmond and sydney that's very busy airspace there so it'll be interesting to see how this one goes but but they're not talking about but civilian controllers going into the towers at military bases and and running the airplanes there are they 
I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work out because we do, for instance, in Darwin, we have commercial airliners going in and, and light G, GA aircraft going in alongside the military. But uh, typically, I believe Darwin's mostly controlled by military controllers. So Cam- I'm not sure where Cam- they're going to draw the lines. Canberra's the same with Fairbairn, isn't it? It's Yeah. Uh, it's a shared facility. Yeah, I'm not sure where they're going to draw the line, whether it's going to be um, where the military people, if it's a military base, military controllers will work, but they will work to the standards of the the domestic commercial operations. I'm really not sure how this is going to work out. How do they uh, do that all over in the States, Rob? Is, uh, they're, they're distinctly separate systems, aren't they? Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I was wondering because, uh, you know, again, could, could the military controllers – work the civilian airplanes oh sure absolutely but but could a civilian controller work uh you know a, a flight of uh you know f-16s that come back and do the overhead break and all that they wouldn't have a clue what to do with that i'd be too busy uh, taking and, photos well yeah you're <laughs> right uh good point that's probably why i didn't pass the examiner traffic controller <laughs> all right so moving right along here and uh david of course being the uh, plane crazy down under Historian. Well, sometimes he's on the airplane geeks as well. Um, so, well, was he uh, ours or is he yours? I, I think, I think he's his. He's his. I'm a co. I'm a code share. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's a code share. <laughs> We've got an interline agreement happening. Good, good, good answer, David. These guys are funny down here. I, I life is different under here. I mean, it really is. It's not just the time zone that's weird. No. So, uh, David, uh, what's happening this week in the world of aviation history? Well, at yesterday on the 18th, our beloved United States Air Force had its second, our 62nd birthday. And interestingly enough, on September 20th, 1912, the Royal Australian Flying Corps was, cre- Corps was created. Um, it was created at Point Cook, um, and it was official approval of a central flying school in Australia, which was at the time part of the Royal Air Force. And it was what became the Royal Australian Air Force. So happy birthday, RAAF. Yay. We'll take no notice of the motorcycle that went by outside, right? Yeah, what that was, yeah. I was about to say, was that a big radial engine going past? I thought it was a Sopwith Camel or something like that. (laughs) And hands up everyone here who's been to Point Cook. Oh, my hand shot up. Up in there, up in there, up in there. I've flown into Point Cook. The home of our glorious uh, Air Force Museum. Yep. Such as it is. Oh, come on, it's got a few Why is everything royal down there? Well, because, you know, we are subjects of Her Gracious Majesty the Queen. But you're not anymore. No, no, we still are. We're still a monarchy. We're not a republic yet. Well, it means they not, haven't, they haven't have... had the revolution yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's not many. How many Commonwealth countries are left? There's us in Canada and New Zealand. And is there anybody bunch else? of bunch of people out of Africa and uh, a few Pacific Islands. Um, so it's not true that, that Australia owns New Zealand? Well, Not quite, no. Well, we don't oh, okay. need to because 90% of their population lives here anyway. There it is. Oh, <laughs> I got, I've got to get that sound. It's about the rim shot, not about the joke. We've given Steve the keys to the sound effects rig. This was a big mistake. Yes. So anyway, folks, uh, that's the end of our uh, roundtable discussion. It's very early in the morning here, and it's breakfast time, we think, over there in the U.S. So uh, our friends at the Airplane Geeks are going to head off and have their breakfast. So uh, David, Rob, and Dan's already long gone. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Dan's gone? Dan who? 
Wow, yeah. the sounds of silence. <laughs> hey, this was this was fun. I'm glad we made this work. Okay, well, that was a lot of fun uh, getting to chat with the guys. Uh, normally, I'm I'm listening to them. I haven't really had that much chance to uh, to interact with them and have them on a podcast or be on their podcast. So that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed discussing our issues with them. How about you? Yeah, it's always cool, and uh, we do talk a lot about the Airplane Geeks podcast there. But um, for for the few of you who listen to us that perhaps uh, don't listen to the airplane geeks that's where grant and i started with our australia desk report and uh, from that has come this podcast so uh, yeah we like to always uh, get the guys on i know they're not from this part of the world but they uh, particularly danny has some great information on uh, happenings in the airlines and um it's, it's uh, we'd like to have them on and we hope you do too so uh, long may the association with the airplane geeks continue I say indeed indeed it's all good fun and speaking of good fun uh, a couple of weekends back uh, the Mission Aviation Fellowship at uh, Coldstream Airport here in uh, Victoria near Melbourne uh, they had a uh, an air show the uh, Mission Aviation Air Show open to everyone who wanted to come along and uh, have a good time uh, I took Nikolai my son with me and we shot off to Coldstream so about an hour and a half drive out from uh, where we live in Melbourne and uh, yeah we uh, we went there they uh, Ronnie one of the pilots with balloon sunrise he was there with uh, one of the the balloons it was a bit too windy to inflate so he just had the basket there and the balloon still in the the envelope was still in the bag on the back of the trailer and uh, he was just firing the burners occasionally just to say hi and people would come over and have a chat with him that was pretty cool Uh, Nico and I arrived just in time we had just finished parking up the car when uh, a roulette one of the uh, they didn't have the full roulettes but one of the roulette uh, aircraft a pc9 staged out of sail came in and uh, flew in and did a rather nice tidy aerobatic routine that was a lot of fun to watch they had uh, a number of uh, mission aviation fellowship aircraft there some were giving joy joy rides there was a helicopter giving rides uh, a number of the local aircraft that are based there the uh, the older aircraft were on static display uh, including paces uh, piper colt uh, tiger moth uh, chipmunk and various uh, aircraft of that era so uh, everyone had a fair bit to see. They had uh, some sausage sizzle. There were some rides and stuff for the kids. There was a few things going on in one of the hangars. And all up, it was a it was a pretty good show. Uh, a couple of couple of aerobatics displays as in addition to the roulettes. Uh, well, the roulette, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, I was fortunate to get a little bit of time to have a chat with Dr. Bruce Searle. Uh, he's in charge of the uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship at Coldstream, and uh, he took some time out to have a quick chat with me and give me some updates on their aircraft and so on. We're down here at uh, Coldstream Airport where um, the Mission Aviation team are having a uh, small air show. It's going really well. Bruce, what gave you the idea to do the air show? Is this a regular event? Yes, we've now been doing this, I think, for the last uh, nine years or so. So it's an annual event and um, our real desire is to give people a bit of a taste of what Mission Aviation does and uh, what our... Uh, vision for the future is excellent and uh, i noticed it was uh donation parking uh so it's it's really a, a demonstration display it's not so much a fundraiser is that correct yeah that's correct we we seek to uh cover our costs but we're not uh, doing it uh, really for fundraising purposes and can you tell us a bit about mission aviation where it's come from um where it's going things like that yeah mission aviation actually was um born i guess in its earliest days prior to uh world war ii between world war one and world war ii when some christian aviators um, uh, realised that aviation skills p- uh, could be used to access remote areas and uh, get the gospel into places that couldn't be uh, reached by any other means. But since uh, World War II it really uh, took off so to speak. Um, mission aviation these days is a very high tech 
organisation uh, with expensive equipment, highly trained personnel, and its uh, its real uniqueness is in using aviation skills to minister to people in the most remote areas of the world. There are some places that you can't get to by any other means than the use of aircraft. You can't walk there, you can't drive there, uh, and so aviation is uh, actually increasingly the means of getting into a lot of the remote areas of the world. So Mission Aviation operates in many countries uh, using hundreds of aircraft and um, is quite unique in its ministry. I've seen reference to you folks flying around the north of Australia in New Guinea and areas like that. I note that you've got a a GA8 air van out there. Is that that's your aircraft of choice or are you still operating buying other new aircraft as well? The uh, Australian Mission Aviation Fellowship is um, redoing its fleet primarily with the Gippsland Aeronautics Air Van. Uh, I think probably uh, the Air Van will also be seen in uh, quite a few other countries. The, the bread and butter aircraft in Mission Aviation has been the Cessna 206 over the years but a lot of places now are going to turbine aircraft. Uh, which are very expensive, but the simple fact of the matter is you can't get um, avgas fuel for piston engines in a lot of places of the world. So turbine aircraft are coming into their fleets. Uh, the air van is certainly being used a lot uh, in northern Australia with MAF and in uh, PNG. And how are you finding the air van? Is it, uh, how, how is it to fly and to operate in the rugged areas? Yeah, the air van's proven very, uh, very good. Um, and They've just uh, now developed the uh, turbocharged version and the first one of those has gone to uh, MAF in Papua New Guinea where of course you're flying at high altitudes on very short strips so turbocharging is a great thing. They're now also looking at uh, or working through putting a turbine engine in the air van and that'll uh, give it accessibility to a whole lot of other countries as well. I believe an aircraft out of the US is the Quest Kodiak, I believe it is, which is also um, designed along a mission, missionary and um, humanitarian grounds. Are you aware of that one? Yeah, the Kodiak. I have flown in the Kodiak. I flew in it last year in the United States. It's a... Um, uh, I suppose a double the capacity of a Cessna 206 in terms of its uh, volume and its carrying capacity. It's a turbine-engined aircraft, and it's been designed by Christian people uh, and manufactured in a Christian establishment, predominantly with the view of uh, refleeting uh, mission aviation organisations. Also, a lot of commercial organisations are purchasing it for um, carrying packages and mail and that sort of stuff, but uh, it's an excellent aircraft and it's just now entering the field, so it's going to be really uh, good to see how it operates. Are you, any, are you looking at that with a potential to purchase or just uh, seeing, comparing it to the Gippsland product? I think it depends. If you're flying in a region where you're not flying at high altitudes then, uh, and you have ready accessibility to um, piston engine aviation fuel, uh, piston engine air vans are a good choice. Uh, If you're looking, however, at um, very high airstrips on the side of a mountain uh, and uh, where avgas fuel is not readily available, then you're really looking at at a turbine-engined aircraft and there's nothing to beat the performance of the Kodiak. Okay, and uh, regarding today's today's event, how would you say today's uh, air show is going compared to past ones and so on? Yeah, this one has been very pleasing. We've had certainly more numbers uh, coming through this time. Uh, We've had a few more activities than uh, previously, but I think each year it builds on itself. 
and people get to know it and um, it's been a great day. We've had good weather, particularly considering what Melbourne's been like over the last few weeks. And the helicopter's been going flat out all day and the aircraft doing joy flights have as well, so it's been a good day. Okay, well thanks very much. Is there anything else that you'd like to say while we're here? Uh, No, we're just thankful that uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to you and um, uh, we'd appreciate uh, any input that people like to have if they want to come and visit the Mission Aviation Centre, let us know. We have uh, school groups coming through here and um, people from retirement homes and all in between. So we're open to uh, visits and we'd love to see people. Excellent. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate your time. So, yeah, a major thanks to uh, Dr. Bruce Searle. Uh, it was really, really appreciated the fact he took some time out to have a chat with me. I uh, hadn't pre-organised any of this. We just turned up with the gear to record and uh, kind of hoped we'd get to talk to people. And sure enough, uh, Bruce was willing to have a chat, and uh, that was that was very good of him. If you want to learn more about Mission Aviation Fellowship, uh, you can go to their website. It's www.maf.org.au. They are, of course, a global organisation, but uh, maf.org.au is the Australian group's website uh, covering Australia and Papua New Guinea and so on. Worth checking out, and uh, if you're looking for some good flying and uh, follow the beliefs and concepts of math, uh, by all means, give it a check out and go have a chat with them. So in addition to chatting with Bruce, I also was able to have a chat with Andrew Temby. Andrew was the pilot of a Yak-52 TW. It's a westernized version of the Yak-52 Russian trainer, a uh, two-seat tandem inline um, radial engined aircraft. Uh, Absolutely beautiful, a lot of fun to watch and listen to. And uh, according to Andrew, it's a lot of fun to fly too. And uh, uh, after the show, when uh, we were putting all the aircraft away, helped Andrew repositioning a whole lot of aircraft in the hangar and uh, then once you had the aircraft bedded down and uh, was just tidying it up a bit I uh, brought out the recording gear and had a good chat with him and uh, all I pretty much had to do was give him a couple of pointers and let him go with the microphone and Andrew took it from there he uh, he was great he uh, he told us a lot of really good information and uh, I was really happy to not really have to say too much or do more than just give a little nudge in the right direction and let Andrew go so major thanks to Andrew and uh, here's his interview recorded standing next to his Yak-52 TW aircraft. This is Grant McCarran uh, once again out here at Coldstream at the Mission Aviation Air, Air Show and uh, we're standing in the hangar here with uh, Andrew Temby who is the proud owner of an absolute gorgeous Yak-52 TW which is the westernized version of the Yak-52 and uh, we're going to have a chat with him as he's working on uh, shutting down the aircraft and tidying it all up. So we're going to have a bit of a chat with him about his flying background and uh, the aircraft in particular and his uh, aerobatics display he put on for us today. So, Andrew, uh, first up is uh, give us a bit of a background about yourself and your flying. Oh, mate, flying's everything. And I, I look, I've been flying since 1980. I think I started in 81 when I didn't have enough money and had to sort of put it sideways there for, for a little bit of time. Uh, we, we, I, put, I slid it sideways for about eight or nine years and then got stuck into it flat out in 1990. And, and since 1990, I guess I've been flying... 100 plus hours a year. I got back into flying because I thought this, this beats fixing cars or fixing aeroplanes which I was involved in as well and uh, I thought what I'll do is I'll get my own little business going and I'll run people around the countryside and uh, take adventure tours all over outback etc and I had a couple of little stints at that and thought no that's not no good I'll go back to my workshop I'll build it up I'll make some money and buy a plane do what I want to do and that's aerobatics and and I guess since the early 90s I've been flat out into aerobatics I was involved in competition for a number 
number of years, won lots of championships, and uh, I put that sideways and, and uh, bought myself a, a Yak 52 TW uh, last last February. So in in 08, this was this uh, first flown 06 model. Uh, I bought bought it with 19 hours on it, and uh, I've put about 80 or 90 hours on it myself in the last 18 months. So I'm, I'm still learning the rig, but um, I'm starting to love it. It took a little while to fall in love with. I'd been used to flying pits and all sorts of other other machines and I guess I'm fortunate that lots of people want to let me ride their aeroplanes and drive them around and uh, um, this machine here uh, it took me a little while to get used to. I've always loved them. I love war planes and I love aerobatic planes. They're the two best planes for me. Not so much a jet man, not so much into pure aerobatic planes, but the right plane for me is one that looks like a war plane and does aerobatics, so Yak fits Yak fits really well. And I've got to say, I've got to, got to like the rumble of that big nine-cylinder supercharged radial. That's all important for me as well. Got myself into bed with this machine and uh, spent all my bucks and, and, and started to enjoy it probably six or seven months after buying it. I found it big, I found it not heavy to fly, it's, it's really lovely and harmonised on the on the controls, but I guess a bit overwhelming, in, in, you sit in the wrong spot uh, compared to pure aerobatic planes where you're looking at your wing, uh, you're sitting almost forward of the wing, it, it just takes a little while to get used to those lines that I'm used to with competition, but I'm starting to feel nice in this thing now and, and it starts to you know get my heartbeat working now, so I'm really, really starting to enjoy and, and like the aeroplane, I think I'm putting on a, a reasonable show now, I'll, I'll continue to work on that one and yeah look they tail slide well they they're 400 horsepower they're uh 2200 pounds or about a ton and uh, before you put fuel and people in it and running light on fuel and, and 400 horsepower it equates to it equates to you know good power to weight ratio so it'll climb out solo on the right day at about two and a half thousand feet um dual it's about 2200 feet a minute which is what they claim in the book uh, maximum all up weight. She's about 2,200 feet a minute. It's got a V&E of 260. So cruise about 135 knots and uh, I chew up around about the 56 litres an hour. Uh, if I push her along and hurry it along with 70 litres an hour, I'll, I'll do about another five or six knots. For aerobatics, I run it at about 82%. For air shows, I'll hit full throttle, but I'll come on and off the throttle with the full business rather than running it too hard. I want this thing to last. Uh, I don't want to break it. They tell me you can't, but, you know, I don't trust anything you can't. Uh, at 82%, it does great aerobatics, and, and it'll give a vertical line from V&E, uh, very close to 10-second vertical. That's from the time that you actually hit the vertical in a proper proper count, uh, in a proper second count, as opposed to a quick one, or it, it really does do 10 seconds vertical. Uh, as soon as you pull in a bit of roll on the vertical, of course, the drag kicks in, and, and, it, and it slows it back a bit. Probably its downside is the roll rate. It, it's probably no better than 200 degrees a second it's a bit slower than an s2a pits in the roll rate uh, but much better munch on the vertical much better pitch it's a very stiff aeroplane so it pitches beautifully and doesn't tend to doesn't tend to to uh, move offline loves the line roll wise it's it is nice to roll uh, big long stick got to get used to that and and these russian aircraft uh, they love to have the stick in the right spot they they talk to you if you don't get the stick in the right spot unlike the american uh, aeroplanes you can sort of push and pull them around a bit and and they, they just do whatever you um whatever you do with the stick they, they love it whereas these things kind of bite back a little bit uh, really light on the controls until until you sort of wind them up and you, you you tuck them into spins after three or four turns and a bit of out spin aileron etc then they get really heavy on the controls they get grumpy can take up to 100 kilos of, of, of foot pedal pressure and, and 40 kilos of elevator stick pressure to to actually 
break a spin once you flatten them out. Uh, look, they can power up spins okay. If you haven't got out spin aileron, they pop straight out within a, within about three quarters of a turn once you've gone through three turns. Um, up to two turns or aerobatic competition spins, which is up to two turns, they stop straight away. Um, it spins fairly nose down and almost goes spirally. There's, there's not a lot of difference in nose attitude between an upright and an inverted spin. They're fairly closely the same and it's easy to pop between the inverted and upright spin too. So they do all those things really nicely. They tumble well, they are very good for uh, Lomjavaks, lots of weight in it so once you get them gyroscopic and get the inertia moving in them they uh, take a bit of stopping and, and wind up really nicely. I tend to keep away from that a bit because it's hard on the crankshaft and uh, once again like I said earlier I don't really want the maintenance. This one's got a three blade MT on it, it's uh, MTV9, uh, 240 centimetres of prop, uh, they do come with a 260 uh, we've trialled those between a few aircraft and, and it appears to make no difference. So I was hoping that the bigger blade might give a bit more hang in the vertical, but it doesn't appear to do that. Uh, the smaller blade the smaller blade and the mid-size blade appear to be the blades to have. Uh, everyone did tell me that it makes no difference. Well, unfortunately, we spent a lot of time mucking around with blades and a mate of mine bought another blade, the 25 US, and trialled the big blade and, and in, his aeroplane doesn't cruise the same speed as this now. It's slower. So he's a bit disappointed about that. But um, the, 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 blade, the blade for these planes being MT and, and composite or timber blade with um, a wrap on it, it it's... Uh, it's, it's a very light propeller, so it is great for aerobatics in the sense that you're not loading the engine crankshaft as, as badly as a, as a metal blade or the big blades. Uh, the aeroplane, look, they, they fit them out with um, uh, westernised instruments, with exception of the, the air the air gauge. This thing runs air for air start. This one's also got an electric start and the air's there to, to work the undercarriage to cycle it and also like I said to start it. It has a sequential valve system in the in the engine cylinders which turns it over at a fairly slow rate. Um, particularly with cold oil in winter the air start's not really the greatest option and it's alright for the Ruskies where they've got their um, air bottles and they can plug in and a hundred ground crew to help. But unfortunately these this machine is it's me and uh, so I have an electric start on it as well and the electric starter spins it over probably probably at about another hundred revs a minute. It, it really winds it up in fact it hardly turns over on the air and uh, if, if, I, if I'm running low on air I can just flick over and, and give it that good start with the, the 28 volt starter. Cool. Uh, it sounds like it's a hell of an aircraft to watch. Uh, we really enjoyed the show you did today. Uh, did, it look like you did, did you do any gyroscopic today? No, look, I didn't throw in any gyroscopics today. I'm a bit of a wuss today. I've uh, been crook for a few weeks and, and, and this is a bit of a first outing in, in, in probably near on a month. And uh, look, we put a tail slide in and, and we had some good verticals up and down rolls and uh, a few vertical pushes and uh, push to the 45s and half negative loops. Uh, there was some good snaps. I uh, did a couple of avalanches off avalanche into the 45 line. Uh, a few snaps on the down lines. But no, gyroscopics, look, I'm not big on them. I think this aeroplane's not a rock and roll machine. It's more really if you start mixing and blending um, tumbles with, the, with, with, with ballet, it, it doesn't look right. 
So I, I tend to try and keep it smooth, keep the keep my lines right, get good 45s, nice verticals, and try and get good radiuses as well. I tend to pull probably 6G into the verticals and and uh, I'll use probably uh, three and a half, maybe four negative Gs. Um, the aeroplane will go plus seven, minus five, but once again, it'll last longer if I don't keep pushing that envelope. Just a quick cre- couple of questions about uh, like how many hours you've got and what kinds of aircraft you've flown, mate. Yeah, look, I, I think I've got about 1,600 hours. Uh, the majority of those now is probably aerobatics or aerobatic related in some, some respect. I mean, we talk about aerobatics, but and by the time you warm these things up and you get airborne and, and you do your 15 minutes of aerobatics, you've actually logged 50 minutes because they take 15 minutes or so to get them warmed up and get airborne and little, there's a little bit of rundown time as well. Uh, so, you know... Uh, my aerobatics is, is primarily what I do. I get, I get out there and, and go and, and, and flip it around and try and try and get better lines. Aircraft types I've flown, wow. I think anything pretty much GA with one engine I've flown. Done a lot of test test flying for people that have built built machines, rebuilt machines, new machines. and been, I guess, fortunate there that I've just been thrown in the deep end, have a fly. And uh, uh, that's, that's always been a lot of fun. Okay, mate. Well, um, is there anything else you want to say about today's air show, um, Coldstream Airport in general, and anything about flying in particular as we come to the end? Oh, look, mate, it's been a great day out here. It's blown a bit of wind and uh, it did blow me offline a bit, but it's always great to turn up to air shows and, and see lots of happy people wanting to see noisy aeroplanes. And, and I guess that's, that's what it's about, is you know making, making a happy time for, for everyone who's here to, to watch and getting the kids out and throwing them in the seat and letting them have a look in, inside the machines and letting them crawl up the wing, etc. And you know that's that's half the fun for me. It's it is really about you know everyone getting involved and and certainly from the display point of view, it's just like another practice day for me. And I just make sure I'm sort of putting the manoeuvres in the right place and make sure that I follow my sequence and and you know don't throw in ex- any extras. Just just do what I've planned to do and. Uh, get down and, and bring the kids about and let them have a bit of a look around and mums and dads like to have a look around and a poke and a push and a prod too and, and I think that's what it's all about and certainly they've put on a great day they've, they've had lots of activities for, for everybody here today and uh, put on a good show with food and barbecue and they've also had some music playing and so they've, they've had a little bit of variation for people that aren't just keen keen aviators so uh, I guess the wives who aren't, aren't big on the aeroplanes and don't need that don't need to hear the engines. They, um, you know, they can go and listen to a bit of good. There's been a bit of country and a bit of folk music playing as well, and uh, it's been good value. It's been great. The MAF have put on a good day, a great show, and uh, the roulettes were here, or one of one of the PC9s, and I was airborne at the time, but. Um, Watching from the air, it looked like a, a normally great, as they do, a great display with the PC-9. And there's been some great model aeroplane flying as well. Awesome, some jets going full noise. A pretty high-powered aerobatic uh, radio-controlled machine too that kind of blew people away. In fact, I think those 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 shows were almost better than mine. So um, <laughs> I'm a bit disappointed to hear that they were here because they, uh, I think, I think they've taken taken the smile. Oh, those those little things can do th- things that are almost impossible in any other aircraft like hanging on their prop and everything now there was one very final question i just realized i should ask is do you do competition aerobatics um and and partake in national state and international competitions i haven't flown international competitions i've flown uh, a number of national competitions i've won a few and i've won a number of uh, state competitions as well and uh, won the curtis aviation award for being the highest percentage scorer over 
two na oh, I think two state championships and a national championship. I've won the uh, Australian Light Aircraft Aerobatic Championships once. Yeah, look, I've won a few things. I haven't really um, been involved in, in competition for 10 years, but it doesn't stop me trying to uh, maintain that level. And I always have that commitment to, to, to the Arresti program, which is how competition has flown. And my practice is always about Arresti. I don't go out there and just blow holes in the sky. I, I, I really try and get it right. I, I get critiqued, um, not regularly enough, but that, that's going to change in the future. I'm going to get um, a little bit more critiquing time. You need people on the ground that can watch and let you know. You can feel right in the cockpit, but it's not right unless it looks right from the ground. So, um, look, I get a little bit of it, but not enough of it. And now that I, I guess I'm feeling a little bit more at home with the aeroplane, it's time now to, um, to tidy it up. Um, my actors probably probably um, seven and a half out of ten in, in my own mind and uh, it could be six from the ground or it could be nine I don't know and and that's what I have to find out it, it needs to be all round nine I can't expect it to be ten it's never going to be that never is uh, but you know if I can push a push a show that's 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 nine out of ten all, all the way through in each figure and maneuver then you know I'd be really really chuffed with that that's that's where I'm headed and yeah certainly uh, I, I look at at uh, the Australian Aerobatic Championship um, sequences and fly them, uh, regularly fly them and, and make sure that I, I keep up to scratch with those and and, and those kind of um, competition sequences are always put together to, um, to be testing, uh, they're always put a high energy manoeuvre is put after a low one so you haven't got any speed to get into the high speed manoeuvre, that, that kind of trick so you've got to do a balancing act, you know you've got to sacrifice a bit of one manoeuvre to get the next manoeuvre uh, and that's really all important in, in terms of um, not only pilot proficiency but learning your machine and knowing where your machine starts and finishes as well and, and how, to, how to cheat your machine without actually cheating the envelope. Well thanks Andrew, I really appreciate your time, it's been great to meet you and uh, have a good chat, I loved watching the show and uh, definitely going to have to save some money and come back for a flight in this uh, beautiful yak here, so thanks very much mate. Yeah, good on you buddy, thanks for that, look I'd love to take you for a ride and certainly even more like to tip you upside down and show you the world from a different aspect and a different <laughs> angle and, and, and that would be that would certainly give me a lot of pleasure to take you for a burn so yep save those pennies and let's go cruising sounds excellent life's definitely better inverted thanks andrew and thanks very much for it to andrew Temby for uh, giving us such a spirited uh, appraisal of uh, what he does with his aircraft and it's it's always encouraging to see people showing such enthusiasm for what they do and uh, his, his passion for what he does obviously comes through there oh yeah it was great i really enjoyed uh, listening to what andrew had to say and uh, he covered a lot of areas about his aircraft and flying it and doing aerobatics and so on and yes i'm definitely going to uh save my pennies and uh go back as soon as I can to go get a ride because it looks like it's going to be a hell of an aircraft to have fun in. Yeah, I am. Um, although I wasn't there on the day he did that interview, but um, I've, I've seen the yak flying before, maybe not that one, but but, but some others, and uh, it'd, be, it'd be quite a thrill to get up and uh, be thrown around the sky in one, I reckon. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, the fun part will be how many... Uh, bath bags will I need but uh, hopefully none and so Grant speaking of things uh, to do with aerobatics and all things aerobatic in fact oh yes indeed our uh, good friend of the podcast Mr Matt Hall we're not worthy we're not worthy has come third in the Red Bull Air Race at Porto in Portugal how cool is that he's now ranked third we're uh, incredibly happy for him here and uh, he did it just before his birthday it was just on the 16th uh, so as he said it was a pretty good birthday present to himself 
A little bit of a worry there uh, in qualifying. Uh, he actually uh, hit a pylon at one stage and uh, a pretty decent, pretty decent hit too, actually. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we uh, was a little bit worried for him there, but um, yeah, he's uh, come through, and uh, this is the first time that he's uh, made the podium. As we said before, you know, and this is his rookie year, and uh, boy, the uh, the more experienced hands must be really worried. Indeed. The other interesting thing there, not only has he finished uh, on the podium here, but in the overall standings, he's gone from fifth after the previous race to third overall. Uh, there's still quite a gap between him and the, uh, the next and second place, but um, yeah, he's uh, he's doing pretty well. Yeah, no, very impressive, and uh, looking forward to when we next get a chance to chat with him. Hopefully, that'll be sooner rather than later. Fingers crossed. And uh, just uh, as we're rounding out this week, uh, Grant, uh, we're just going to cover a few quick stories that we found in uh, recent days uh, concerning some defence stories. Yeah, yeah, a couple of defence issues to discuss, uh, particularly about the uh, F-35. Uh, basically, uh, the big one is that uh, there's some questioning about the F-35's ability to uh, maintain its stealthiness uh, once it comes into into uh, production. Uh, they're saying that the, according to an article uh, here in the ABC News, uh, there are claims that Australia's biggest ever defence purchase, the $16 billion F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program, has lost its biggest advantage, stealth. Defence analysts say the new Russian L-band radar will detect the fighter and can be fitted to Sukhoi jet fighters of the type flown by Indonesia, Malaysia, China and Vietnam. Now, the, uh, the politician that's brought this up, is uh, it's actually quite an interesting side story in itself. It's the uh, member for... Uh, Tangney, is that Tangney perhaps? Dr. Dennis Jensen, and uh, he's actually a former research scientist and defence analyst with the uh, Defence Science and Technology Organisation, so uh, one would think he's probably got a reasonable insight into these issues. Yeah, what he's pointing out is that the JSF is, unlike the F-22, which is designed to be stealthy from every side, the JSF is primarily uh, stealthy to the frontal aspect, and uh, it's optimized around a certain set of frequencies and uh, the radar that the Russians have developed uh, for the Sukhoi flankers and other aircraft is able to punch through those frequencies and uh, so he's quite concerned that it's going to be able to be seen and there goes its stealthy benefit. A spokesman for the Defence Minister John Faulkner says that uh, Defence is monitoring all these uh, technical developments and he says ongoing analysis shows that the Joint Strike Fighter will be able to meet Australia's requirements in all realistic threat situations and he goes on to say that includes Indonesia's uh, purchase of some Sukhoi 35s. Well of course he would say that but uh, let's just hope he's right. Well, they do have to say that, and they'll continue saying that until finally they can't anymore, if that is the case. But uh, a big thing to remember is uh, everyone's making a lot of uh, a lot of noise about uh, Indonesia buying these Sukhoi Su-35 fighters and uh, other such aircraft. Well, it's one thing to buy them. It's another to be able to use them properly, uh, both the training and the funding to be able to keep them in the air, uh, keep the people current with them, uh, have the... Uh, maintenance and support and so on that's required to uh, keep a uh, top-notch frontline group of fighters going so there is the concept that uh, they may have some really good tools but if they're not really good at using them that uh, won't be such an issue of course uh, so far so good we're all one big happy family here in the asia pacific area so uh, whether that becomes a uh, contention area uh, remains to be seen yeah now 
um, an air marshal, uh, one of the um, high-ranking officers in the Royal Australian Air Force, has also been in the news this week um, saying that if Australia wants to be, quote-unquote, the best small air force in the world, then we need to have, uh, we need to complete the full purchase of uh, four squadrons, not three, of the uh, F-35. Yeah, he's seeing that as a, a, a an important issue to make sure that we've got the coverage and the backing that we require of those aircraft to uh, to uh, fully cover training and operational issues. Yeah, now the um, the JSF program and in fact some other defence programs, including uh, some uh, plans to uh, perhaps not purchase as many submarines for the navy. That's that's uh, obviously been a big issue here, and it's been in the news a lot lately. The uh, RAF were originally going to purchase, uh, we believe, 100 aircraft, would have made uh, four squadrons. They have been talking about cutting that back to 75, making three. Uh, Air Marshal Mark Binskin has uh, been out of the news, and he's not particularly happy about this uh, prospect. Yeah, yeah. They he, he wants more JSFs and uh, also more female fast jet pilots. He's uh, totally happy to to uh, to get more of them in there. So. Uh, Aside from this whole stealth and the quantity that we're buying, the other big issue with the um, F-35 is the inevitable delays. A large program like this and cutting-edge technology very likely to be running late, like the F-111 did, thus our purchase of the Super Hornets, uh, some of which are capable of being upgraded to Growlers, the um, electronic warfare and, and attacking variants. The... Um, We've got a, quite a few programs that are running late at the moment, from the Wedgetail Airborne Early Warning System through to the um, A330 multi-role tanker transports that we're getting, uh, the KC-30s, I believe they're calling them. Uh, they're all being pushed along, but uh, because we're buying some of the latest technology and no one else has really used it, uh, we're discovering the fun of and joy of being on the bleeding edge as opposed to being on the cutting edge. And uh, just talking about the aircraft, in fact, that these new aircraft will be replacing, and that would be the uh, General Dynamics F-111. Uh, Australia's the only country left still operating the F-111, and they will be re- uh, retired at the end of this year. Um, in the meantime, they've been uh, in some pretty heavy maintenance program to keep them airworthy, and that's uh, causing some uh, environmental problems up there in uh, Queensland. Yeah, that's correct. According to another article in the ABC News, uh, F-111 maintenance is being blamed for creek contamination. Up at Amberley in Queensland, Amberley Air Base, uh, they did a a program between 1973 and 2000 that involved removing and replacing the sealants inside the fuel tanks of F-111s. Now, this whole program has caused a number of issues. Uh, The people who are working on it were working in very confined spaces uh, inside the wings of F-111s and so on, inside the fuel tanks rather. And uh, they were exposed to a lot of chemicals, even with the protection they were given. And there's been a number of, uh, of medical cases brought to the, uh, the courts. And uh, it's only been recently that a number of these people have been awarded uh, compensation claims for uh, the damage that they've suffered both psychologically and physically. Well, now this latest report is talking about uh, the chemicals that uh, were a byproduct of this process. Uh, they were actually uh, being incinerated and the people, uh, a former serviceman has been quoted as saying how he ran the uh, incinerator on the banks of Worrell Creek and it was used to burn off chemicals from the program and uh, he believes the incinerator polluted the creek because it didn't have filters to stop toxic smoke and soot from escaping and uh, he's saying they were doing it seven days a week. The chemical was unstable, and you could never guess what chemical you had some days. The incinerator backfired, smoked, and it was a shambles. This is pretty big stuff. 
Yeah, and he's also saying here further down the article that there's a dam apparently somewhere in this uh, same waste disposal area where they were storing chemicals from the program as well. And it appears as though uh, every time it rained, and it does rain heavily up there in Queensland at times, um, the dam would flood and uh, that water would overflow down into the Worrell Creek and contaminate the whole creek. Yeah, he's, he's talking about uh, animal deformities and all sorts of things in the area. So, yeah, pretty full on. Uh, all this, A lot of this uh, burn off and disposal was being done in the late 70s and very early 80s and uh, yeah the whole aspect of toxic environmental impact just wasn't really important back then sounds like something straight out of the montgomery burns uh, handbook <laughs> <laughs> yeah blinky the three-eyed fish so uh, yeah that's that story will probably have some legs for a while so we'll report on that as uh, time goes on okay and finally this week uh, something that i thought we might do each month um, on the podcast as time goes on if we last that long <laughs> sure we will oh please and uh listeners to this podcast would know well that i regard australian aviation magazine as one of the premier references in the aviation world if you're looking for a magazine to read and for some reason you haven't read australian aviation well you're missing out and you really ought to uh, one of my favorite sections in that is by gordon reed and it's the traffic section and uh, every every month he reports on uh, comings and goings he's obviously got some excellent sources indeed so we just, I just thought uh, what we might do uh, each month, Grant, is just pick and choose a few um, of the more interesting ones that uh, perhaps tie to some of the other news articles that we've been covering in the podcast. Certainly. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, he says diving for his copy of Australian Aviation. <laughs> so, uh, well, there's a lot in this month, so we'll just pick a few here and um, a couple of interesting ones that I saw here uh, are dealing with former Ausjet aircraft. And uh, the first one here is uh, Oscar Bravo November which is the 737-229 Advanced, uh, was cancelled from the register on May 14th and was finally placed on the US register as November 732 Hotel. Uh, you realise those aircraft, the old 737-200s, were being listed for slightly less than the cost of a brand new Cirrus G3? Yep, so uh, interesting here, they've, it's actually been um, sold to the Wells Fargo Bank of uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, as of early August, the aircraft remained parked at Perth Airport and uh, still wearing its US registration. The other Ausjet aircraft is also a 737-229 Oscar Zula uniform. Oh, in fact, there's two here, an Oscar Zula X-ray. They're also parked at Perth and they, they've been cancelled from the Australian register at the end of June. Uh, yep, they're just sitting there waiting to be sold. Yep, and uh, the following month, the two aircraft both uh, were re-registered with uh, US registrations to uh, Flightstar Trading of Fort Lauderdale. Florida. Oh, so They've managed to sell them all off. Yeah, I don't know whether they've uh, just been sold to... It looks like there they may have been sold to a leasing company, and uh, goodness knows, um, you'd think they'd just be going off to the scrap heap there that old, but there you go. Oh, no, they they could be plying the airwaves of some third world country. Okay, and the next one here deals with our good friends at V Australia. It says it's placed its fourth 777-300 series, uh, which will be registered uh, Victor Papa Foxtrot, and it's on the register. Uh, delivery de- details are not available yet, but uh, it does carry their... At the top of the traffic section, a uh, great photo of the aircraft in uh, unpainted form doing a test flight there at uh, Washington. So it's uh, it's obviously uh, been built and it's in the test flight phase. So yeah, it'll be good for V Australia. It won't be too long before that arrives here and uh, enters service. Indeed. Always always good to have another uh, 777 flying around here. Now, we were just talking about uh, tanker program for the RAAF and it says here that an A330-200 uh, with a very long extension at the end, an MRTT EC334. Yep, that's for multi-role tanker transport. 
Well, there you go. Shows how much I know. Uh, ferried into Brisbane from Singapore on June 25th after completing its delivery flight from Europe. Uh, the A330 will be allocated uh, the Royal Australian Air Force serial number of Alpha 39-003 after its conversion in Brisbane with Qantas to a KC-30 tanker transport configuration. Uh, also, its sister ship, well, actually its sister ship is already here and it's already undergoing its conversion program at Qantas up in Brisbane. Uh, it's been there since the 1st of June 08, so yeah. it's, been, it's been there a while. Yeah, you know, that's one of the other, they've had a few delays on uh, that project. Uh, once again, getting the uh, a new technology boom sort of for fuel transfer sorted out over in Europe. The uh, demonstrator aircraft have been doing dry connections with um, with other tankers. They've been, the tanker has been connecting to other aircraft and other aircraft have been connecting to it to simulate uh, tanking. They've all been dry. They haven't actually pumped fuel but uh, by about now, they should be under the way for the actual wet tests. And that's about everything we have for you for this week's episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. It's uh, been a little bit higgledy-piggledy this week. We've had quite a few technical difficulties uh, this week, so we uh, we beg your indulgence. We hope that uh, you enjoyed the episode regardless. Yeah, we've covered airlines. We've covered air traffic control. We've had our friends from America join us. And uh, we've covered the, uh, the MAF air show with uh, good coverage of aerobatics. So... I'm pretty comfortable we've had a good balanced uh, approach with that and all the military discussion at the end. I think it's I think we've pretty much covered everything aviation down here at the moment. Yep, it's been fun, but it's uh, very, very early in the morning here, so we're going to finish up now. So we will tell you that our sound effects each week come to you courtesy of soundsnap.com. You can find uh, our show notes and links to all the articles that we've covered in our podcast on this and every other episode we've done so far on our website. That's playingcrazydownunder.com. You can visit our fan page on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter if you want to know we always update what we're doing on Twitter and our handle there is PCDU. You are also our uh, theme music track is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson, a.k.a. To Cats. And uh, one other extra friend of the podcast that I'd really like to mention this week, and that's my brother Adam. Um, he uh, was very kind this week in uh, paying off my uh, Levite uh, sound mixer that I was uh, very patiently uh, paying off bit by bit each week. So uh, to my brother Adam, uh, legend, mate friend of the podcast status for you and uh, really appreciate it mate uh, now if i can just work out how to use this thing i'll be really happy it's called read the manual dude you won't lose your man card if you read the manual <laughs> i better go and fish it out of the bin then <laughs> <laughs> not a good place for it so anyway folks uh, we will catch you again very shortly but until next time remember it's what's down under that counts folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.